and head to Romans 8, verses 31 to 34. So starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Thanks, Lucas. Well, it was a joy for me this past week to be able to meet together with a few central people, to see people face to face. Oh, what, I can't even tell you what a blessing that was. Seeing people on Zoom calls and they're always on a screen, that just does not compare uh, to real life. So again, we encourage you within the, the obvious the boundaries that we have as a province, meeting with other believers, uh, such an encouragement. I think we're all just learning the value of this. We always knew it was important. Uh, but now it's just sweeter. It's more sweeter uh, than it used to be. And so we're very grateful for it. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our series uh, in Romans 8. And as we've been saying, this chapter is meant to show us how we can face all the hardships, the sufferings, the difficulties of life, even death itself. Those things are always hard. But what Romans 8 shows us is how we can face them, get through them, and even to conquer them. And as you come to the end of Romans chapter 8, what Paul is saying is what you need is assurance of salvation. You need assurance of your salvation. And by that, uh, we mean, Paul means, that you will be able to face anything. If you possess deep inside of you an assurance, a settled conviction that your sins are forgiven, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, and that God is working all things together for your good to bring you to your ultimate good and your final happiness. Assurance is the theme here at the end of Romans chapter 8. I came across a great quote by a 19th century author named J.C. Ryle. He writes this about assurance. Assurance, he says, goes far to set a child of God free from a painful kind of bondage and thus ministers mightily to his comfort. He wrote this in the 19th century, so get the gender-inclusive language. It's for everybody. He says this assurance enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business. The great debt, a paid debt. The great disease, a healed disease. And the great work, a finished work. And all other business, diseases, debts, and works are then, by comparison, small. It makes him always feel that he has something solid beneath his feet. Assurance. Here in Romans 8, from verses 31 to 39, what Paul is seeking to do is to remove all lingering doubts, all secret fears about anything that comes into our minds so that we will be assured of God's love for us in Christ, that we would have this rock underneath our feet. And the way he does this is he asks five questions. 
Now, last week, I put these questions in, form, in the form of doubts. Five doubts is what I said. And I think that's a good way to approach it because all the questions have doubts underneath them. But this week, I came up with a better metaphor. So I'm actually going to switch it. I probably should have done doubt number three and four this week. But I'm going to switch it because I think there's a better way even for us to be able to see this. We have a phrase in English that perfectly describes what Paul is trying to do here. What Paul is trying to do here is a phrase that we would use when we say to someone, oh man, he or she just threw down the gauntlet. Do you know that phrase? Throwing down the gauntlet. It comes from the medieval days. So of course, those are the days of knights and great battles and all this kind of stuff. And a gauntlet was a knight's armored glove. And so If a knight wanted to challenge another knight to a battle, what he would do is he would take off his armored gauntlet, he would raise it above his head, and he would throw it down at the feet of his potential opponent. And if the opponent picked up the gauntlet, the opponent was saying, I accept your challenge. But a knight would always do this, it's it's a defiant way of doing it. He he wouldn't just kind of take off his glove and, you know, drop it at his feet. He would take it off and defiantly, boldly throw it at his feet, saying, I dare you to take up that gauntlet. I dare you to take up the challenge. So when we use the phrase, throw down the gauntlet, that's exactly what we're doing. We're saying, I'm issuing a challenge. But it's not just any old challenge. I'm issuing it in a defiant way, in a, in a bold way. I'm putting it out there in your face. So you may, maybe you'd say to someone else, I could absolutely destroy you in a 100-meter dash race. That's throwing down the gauntlet. You just threw down the gauntlet. The question is, will your friend pick up the gauntlet, and now you guys are going to go race and figure it out? You threw down the gauntlet. What you're saying is, I dare you to pick it up. I dare you to accept my challenge. Now that, I think, is what Paul is doing at the end of Romans 8. At the the end of Romans 8, what he does is he really throws down five gauntlets. He asks five questions. What he's doing is he's issuing five challenges to anybody, to everybody, whether they're in heaven, whether they're on earth, or whether they are in hell, and he is throwing down the gauntlet and saying, I dare anyone to pick up that gauntlet and to take up the challenges which I am issuing in these five questions. As we're going to see, no one can pick up the gauntlet. If anyone were to try, they would be utterly destroyed. Like if you tried to throw down the gauntlet with Usain Bolt and said, I challenge you to a 100-meter dash. You tried that, you're dead. No one can do it. Or if Usain Bolt threw down the gauntlet and said, I challenge anyone else, who can pick up that gauntlet? Could you do it? No, there's not even a hope for you. That is what Paul is doing. So as we read this, we are meant to be assured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And like Paul to be able to defy all challengers. So last week, we looked at the first two questions. That is, the first two times that Paul threw down the gauntlet. Now today, I want to look at the third and the fourth time. So the third and the fourth question. So let's have some fun together. I think there's some amazing things in here. Take off your gauntlet, lift it high with Paul, Throw it down. What is the third defiant challenge that Paul issues in this passage? Here it is. You can say with Paul, does anyone dare to charge me for my sins? Anyone? Anyone out there dare to challenge me 
for my sins? I get this, of course, from verse 33. Look at verse 33 with me. Here's what it says. Paul, here's the question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, this word charge, uh, you, you, you know this term. Everybody knows this term. It's, it's a legal term. It comes from the courtroom when someone is being charged for a crime which they've either committed or not committed. A charge is being issued against them. So the image here then is that you and I are standing in God's courtroom, and Paul is throwing down the gauntlet in front of the entire courtroom, and he is defiantly saying, will anyone dare to take up the gauntlet to stand up and to try to charge any of God's chosen people with sin? I dare anyone to pick up this challenge. I dare anyone to try to indict them. That's the challenge that Paul is issuing. Well, let's reflect on this for a moment. Think about your own life. Can you think of anyone or anything who might be able to pick up that gauntlet, to take up that challenge, and to charge you with sin? Can you think of anyone or anything? I sure can. The list's a mile long. Think about it. First of all, the devil might pick up that gauntlet. In the Bible, the devil is called, well, the word devil means slanderer. He is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12, verse 10. In other words, he's the prosecuting attorney. That's exactly what he does. He charges, he accuses the brethren. So he could easily stand up in God's courtroom, pick up the gauntlet, and he could just say something like, oh, I mean, look at Barton's life. Look at the things he's done. I mean, honestly, God, what's going to go on here? Surely you could charge him with this and with that. I mean, this is no way for a Christian to act. That's certainly no way for a pastor to act. So the devil could say, I I charge Barton with 253 accounts of this, 189 accounts of that, and he could go on and on. Who will bring any charge, Paul? It seems like the devil might be able to take up the gauntlet and take up that challenge. But secondly, my own conscience might very well bring charges against me. Listen, you may very well fool other people about who you are or even what you've done, but you know that you can't really fool yourself. You know how dark some of your thoughts can be at times. You know the secret things you've done, even if no one else in this world knows them. And that's why in Romans chapter 2, Paul says that even for those who've never even read the Bible, they are accountable for, he says, their conscience also bears witness. That's another courtroom analogy, a witness. Their conscience will bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, Paul, you've thrown down the gauntlet, but my own conscience might pick up that gauntlet and charge me on Judgment Day. And then think about this. Couldn't other people bring many charges against you? (laughs) They could against me. My parents could charge me on all kinds of accounts if they wanted for things I maybe did as a kid and as a teenager. My wife and kids could probably charge me with a list of things a mile long. And then I am... Deeply grieved to say I've had conflict in my life with other people. I don't like it. It deeply grieves me. But surely there are many people who could also stand up in God's courtroom 
and they could make charges against me because of maybe words I've said, maybe I haven't treated people well. In other words, there's a whole lot of people who could bring charges against me. But amongst all this, and most frightening of all, there is one who above all these other ones we've talked about could truly bring charges against me. And that is God himself. As Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In other words, how can I ever hide anything from the all-seeing eye of God? How could I ever find anything that is in a dark corner that I could hide and maybe fool everybody else when God's holiness will illuminate every corner, dark corner of the universe? There is no place to hide. I can fool other people. I might even argue against my own conscience and against the devil and other people, but I cannot fool God himself. We're totally exposed before him. So Paul, Paul, you're asking, who dares to charge me, Paul? It seems like every single seat in the entire courtroom is filled with people who may bring charges against me. And it's not just that every seat is filled. There's a lineup that goes out the courtroom, out the door, down the hallway, and spills out onto the street. Paul, who might bring a charge against me? Probably the better question is who might not bring a charge against me? Everyone could have a case against me. Now, Paul knows this. He's not ignorant of it. And yet, he still throws down the gauntlet before the courtroom of God and defiantly says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? And his question implies that no one can, that no one can bring a charge. So how can Paul, and by extension, how can you and I have assurance that no one can bring a charge against us? Answer, because if you are in Jesus Christ, if you belong to Jesus Christ, God himself has justified you, justified you. So, look at verse 33 again. Paul asks the question, who shall bring any charge against God elect? Answer, it is God who justifies. One short sentence. It is God who justifies. Now, what does that mean? Justification. What is that word? This is critical. Stick right with me right now. We got to understand. If you understand justification, then you too can throw down the gauntlet and you can have assurance that no one can pick it up and issue a charge against you. Justification is also a legal word. It also comes from the courtroom. It means that God the judge has brought down the gavel and he has issued a final verdict in your case if you belong to Christ. He's issued a final verdict. It's a once and for all declaration that you are pardoned of all sin, that no charges can stick against you, and not only that, he views you as perfectly keeping his law. To be justified then means no charge can stick against you. And, and realize, God is not just some local, provincial city court. He's not even, you know, like a, 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 some, a provincial level court. No, he is not just the Supreme Court. He's the Supreme Court of the entire universe. So there is no higher appeal. There is no higher judgment. If the judge of the universe brings down his gavel and says, you are justified, 
then you're justified. No one can bring a charge against you. But now, if you're thinking this about this, if you're tracking this, you should be saying, okay, but how can God do that? I mean, I have sinned. I have committed crimes against him. I have broken his law. How can he do that? Answer, through Jesus Christ. Rather than charge you for your sins, which you deserve, God took the charges that stood against you, and he charged them against his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ voluntarily stood in God's courtroom, so to speak, and took those charges. Then he voluntarily took all the punishment that is deserving for those charges upon himself. He was condemned rather than you and I being condemned. He voluntarily took the punishment that those charges deserve so that anyone then who comes and wants to call on Jesus to save them will be justified. Because listen, here's the logic. God is a just judge. Can you imagine a judge charging somebody with a crime, giving them the punishment for the crime, and then like a little while later come back, charge them and punish them again for the same crime? No, that would be unjust. You cannot punish a charge twice. You cannot issue a charge twice. You cannot punish something twice. And God is a just judge. Having punished all of our sins in Jesus Christ, we can trust that he will never do it again. For the record that stood against you is canceled. There is no record. All the record that he sees is Jesus' record, and it's spotless, it's flawless, and it says he's perfectly kept God's law. So here was what this comes to. The greatest need that you have, the greatest need that I have, is to be justified in God's courtroom. And the way that you get justified is not to make excuses and say, oh, I didn't actually do it. The way to get justified is not to say, well, I'll try to do better. I'll try to clean up my life. No, the crimes still stand against you. How will you pay for those? The way to be justified is to stop trying to justify yourself, to say, I am guilty. Ah, but Jesus Christ took the charges that are against me, and he stood in my place and took the punishment for them so that God would justify me. So I ask you today, have you done that? Have you come before God and just gotten rid of all excuses and just said, I admit that I've done wrong things. I admit I have not loved you. Save me because of Jesus Christ. I'm looking to him alone. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus alone is justified before God. Now here's where all the best part comes. Let's bring all this together. If you've done that, when you heard the judge of the universe say that all charges against you are dropped, that you are justified, then you can be filled with a great boldness, can't you? Think this through. You can turn around. You can face the entire courtroom of potential accusers against you, and you can take off your gauntlet, you can throw, lift it high, and you can throw it down in absolute defiance. And like Paul, you can shout to every single person gathered there and say, does anyone dare to take up that gauntlet and to charge me with any sins? Anyone? Anyone? Do you dare to stand up? Oh, and what do you hear when you do that? Silence. Silence. For no one can stand up and charge those whom God has justified. 
ah, but wait, maybe, maybe some accuser might. Maybe some accuser might start to stand and to raise their voice and accusation against you. But if that happens, all of a sudden from behind you, the judge's voice speaks and says, overruled. <laughs> overruled. All charges, both past, present, and future, have been fully prosecuted in my son. And if the, the, the accusing voice should try to continue to speak, God will say, you can sit down or I will hold you in contempt of this court. And should that accusing voice continue to try to speak, God the judge will say, bailiff, remove this accuser from my courtroom. This person, this is my child, this person has been justified. There are no charges against him or her. And so that's why we're going to sing in a few minutes these great words. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do you do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Why? For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Or in the words of a great old hymn from the 1700s, bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Brothers and sisters, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you need never fear that any charge can be brought against you. You can take off your gauntlet, you can throw it down in absolute defiance of anybody and everybody, whether in heaven, on earth, or in hell itself, and you can say, who dares to bring any charge against me for my sin? Sin cannot bring a charge against you. Other people cannot. Satan cannot. And best of all, God will not. He will not, for it is God himself who justified you through Jesus Christ. And if God is for you, then who can possibly be against you? Ah, this is assurance. That's an entire sermon right there. We could be done, but Paul's not done. He wants to just strengthen us even further. He wants all lingering doubts, all secret fears to be banished, that we would have total assurance. So let's continue on. We've said that Paul asks five questions in verses 31 to 39. He throws down the gauntlet five times. We've looked at the first three. Now, let's come to the fourth defiant challenge. Here it is. You can say with Paul, does anyone dare condemn me for my sins? Anyone? Gauntlet's been thrown down. Anyone dare to condemn me? Now, let's open this up a bit because here's the first question. How does this question, this challenge, differ from the previous. They kind of sound the same. Who will bring any charge against me? Who will bring any, who will actually condemn me? Aren't those kind of the same things? Well, they are not the same thing. They're similar to each other, no question about it. But there is a clear distinction between them. There is a difference between being charged in a court of law and ultimately being condemned in a court of law. 
There's a difference between being charged with sins in God's courtroom and ultimately for God himself to say to you in the words of Matthew 25, 41, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, if you're you're tracking this closely, your, your thought should be this. Hold on, but if no charges can be laid against me, then doesn't it just logically follow that I would never be condemned? That's correct. And if you thought that, that is great gospel logic and you need to hold on to it. But here's the thing. We as Christians often are not so logical. So often our emotions come in, they control us, and so often a true Christian can believe they are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, and and yet they can somehow have a, a lingering doubt, a secret fear that in the end they will be ultimately condemned. So they just, they forget about the charges part. They're not following the gospel logic part. So often we do this, and just to put an extra nuance on this, When Paul asks who is to condemn, you notice that? The very next phrase he says is this, that Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So notice he says, who is to condemn? What's the very next two words? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Want to get that slide up on the screen? Do we have that one? Let's bring it together. Do we have that next slide? There we go. Perfect. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus. Now, grammatically, this actually connects these two. So that a sense of it is, who is to condemn as in, does anyone condemn me? But it's also the sense of, who is to condemn? Will Christ Jesus condemn me? Might Christ Jesus condemn me? Grammatically, those two things are connected. Now, that is a question worth asking. Track very closely on this. If you're a true Christian and you've read the Bible even a little bit, you know that God has given over all judgment to His Son. So, Jesus is the ultimate judge. Not only that, a true Christian who's been a Christian even a little while, you've read the Bible a little bit, you know that many people will claim to be his own on that day, will even claim to have done great things for him, and Jesus will turn to such people and say to them, quote, I never knew you. So even when a true Christians are assured that no charges can be brought them. Sometimes in our hearts, and our minds, we can feel like, oh no, secretly deep down inside, what if it's actually Jesus who condemns me? I've talked with many Christians who probably would never say this in many settings, but they will share it when they really get into their hearts. I've talked with Christians in their 90s who clearly understand the gospel, who've loved Jesus and served him their entire life, And yet they have a lingering doubt, a secret fear that when they get to judgment day, yes, no one else can condemn them, but they fear that Jesus himself might do it. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. I've struggled with this doubt many times in my life as well. One time I had a dream. And in this dream, it was a dream of the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
In my dream, I was outside, and suddenly the sky tore apart like a, a portal was opening, and a giant being whom I knew to be Jesus stepped through into our world. I knew in this moment this must be the second coming of Christ, and I was thrilled beyond all imagination. And I called for Jesus to come, and I was so excited to meet him. And he turned to me and said, I don't know you. In that moment in my dream, sheer terror filled my heart. For the very one who I thought was for me actually turned out in the end to be against me. And that dream haunted my waking hours many times. It made me ponder questions like, is that a real dream or did I just eat salsa before bed last night? <laughs> it made me ponder real hard questions like, what if I've been wrong? Do I, have I really placed my faith in Jesus Christ? What if Jesus condemned me? Could this possibly be true? I bring all this up to say to you that there are many doubts, there are many fears that Christians have, and many of them get solved even up to this point in where Paul has us, but my opinion is one of the most powerful secret fears that every, not every Christian, many Christians have is that at the end of the day, yes, God has justified us. Yes, no one can lay a charge against us. But what if on judgment day, Jesus himself turns against us? Oh, and if you know who Jesus is, that fear can be a deep fear and it can strip you of all assurance. It can strip you of all joy for that is the only voice, the only opinion that really matters at the end of the day. So have you ever struggled with that? If so, verse 34 is for you. And it is good news. In this verse, Paul throws down the gauntlet and he declares that it is absurd and unthinkable that anyone, especially Jesus, would condemn God's chosen people. He dares anyone to pick up the gauntlet and prove him wrong. So he's going to give his case, why he's right, why we can be assured. So how, Paul, can you be so sure, how can we be so sure that Jesus himself or anyone else might not ultimately condemn us? Well, Paul shows us four things about Jesus that should get rid of all those lingering doubts and secret fears. So let's go through these four things very quickly. First of all, it is absolutely absurd and unthinkable that anyone, especially Jesus, will ultimately condemn us. Why? First reason because Christ died for our sins. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one, he says, who died. Now, you're thinking to yourself, I know that. I've heard that my whole life. I know that. Do you really know that? If you really know that, why would you ever have any doubt? Why would you ever have any fear that anyone, let alone Jesus, might finally condemn you? Listen, Jesus was condemned in your place. That's why he went to the cross, so that you might never be condemned. So here's the big question to ask your own heart. Why would he, who went through all of that and was condemned at the cross for my sins, why would he do all of that to save me from condemnation, only to turn around and condemn me in the end? It's absurd. Why would he do that? That makes no sense at all. The very reason he died was to save you from condemnation. Second, 
It is absurd and unthinkable that anyone, especially Jesus, will ultimately condemn us because, second reason, Christ was raised from the dead. Question, who is to condemn? Answer, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Jesus was raised. It's not just that he died. God also raised him from the dead. And as I've said to you many times before, the resurrection is God's proof that he fully accepts Christ's payment for the debt of your sins. The way I've sometimes put it to you is the resurrection is God's receipt that your debt has been paid in full. So you can be sure that no one, not even God himself, will ultimately condemn you for your debts have been paid at the cross. So again, say this to yourself. If God were to condemn you, he would then have to say that Jesus' sacrifice is not enough. He'd have to say to his own son, you tried really hard, but it's just not enough to pay the debt for sin, son. I'm sorry. And he would also have to say, I was wrong to raise you from the dead. I should have left you in the grave because I do not accept your sacrifice. Do you really think that God would say that to his son? God forbid that he would say that to his son. He raised him from the dead to say to you, to me, that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, that it's more than enough, that the shed blood of Christ has paid our debts. He raised him to say to us, I can justify you. So why would we doubt it's absurd then that God himself would turn against us in the end? That's the second thing that should get rid of those lingering doubts and secret fears. But the resurrection is not the end of the story. Third, it is absurd and unthinkable that anyone, especially Jesus, will ultimately condemn us because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So again, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who is raised, and who is at the right hand of God. He ascended to God, and gave, God gave him the place of supreme honor, which is to sit on the right hand. It's a, an image of the supreme place of honor and authority. And now Jesus, as he says, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is using that authority and power to save sinners and to bring them into his kingdom. So, brothers and sisters, do you really think that the heart of Jesus, which was for you when he was dying on the cross, suddenly went against you when he arrived back into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God? Do you think his heart has suddenly changed? He who left heaven to die in your place, do you think somehow his heart has changed now? Do you really think that he who is using all his authority and power to save sinners will suddenly say, no, not for you though, I'm against you. Do you really think he would do that? No, it is impossible. It is absurd. Ah, but one more thing. One more thing that hopefully banishes all these lingering doubts that anyone, especially Jesus, would condemn you. Take up this gauntlet and throw it down. We talk a lot about Jesus' death, his resurrection, and even his ascension. But there's one last thing that proves to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus himself will not ultimately condemn anyone who belongs to him on Judgment Day. And here's the question to be able to answer, that you have to answer. 
The question is this, what is Jesus doing right now? Right now. I'm not asking you what did he do at the cross, what did he do in the resurrection. No, I'm asking you, what is Jesus doing right this second? If you can answer that question, you will have one of the greatest proofs that he will never ultimately condemn you on judgment day. In the fourth and final place, then, we could say this. It is absurd and unthinkable that anyone, especially Jesus, will ultimately condemn us because Christ is interceding for his people right now. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What is he doing right now? He's interceding. What does that mean? Well, just think about this. You know what this word means, to intercede. Uh, Let's just say you're a parent, and and you, uh, for your child, you stand between your child on the one hand and the school on the other. Maybe you want to intercede on behalf of your child, and so you're going to speak to the school to maybe try to get your child some extra help or something. You are in the middle. You are interceding, speaking to the school on behalf of the good of your child. That's what it means to intercede. So, what is Jesus doing right now? Jesus is interceding on your behalf to God the Father. What is he asking God the Father for? He's asking that the Father would complete the work that he began before the foundation of the world. He's showing the Father his wounds, saying all that is necessary has been done. He's interceding, asking that no sins will be held against you, that you would finally be brought into his eternal kingdom. I think we get a great example of this in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, where Jesus said to Simon Peter these words, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, Simon, Satan wants to shake you so violently that you will fall. And Peter most certainly did fall, for he denied his Savior three times, not once, but three times. But unlike Judas, he did not fall completely. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Why Why in the end did Peter not end up like Judas? Why was Peter led to repentance? Why was Peter ultimately saved and became the man he did and not ultimately fall? Because Jesus interceded on his behalf. Jesus spoke to the Father, prayed to the Father, that his faith would not ultimately fail. So what is it that will enable you to persevere to the end and be saved? Well, you must persevere. But the great answer is Jesus is praying for you right now. We we often ask people to pray for us. We know the power of prayer. Listen, Jesus himself is praying for you. If that's not the most encouraging thing you've ever heard, I don't know what is. The Son of Man, the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been granted, the one who has been given all authority in heaven and earth, this one is praying for you right now. But you say, but what what about the fact that I might continue to sin in this world? Answer, Christ continues to intercede on your behalf in heaven, even when you continue to sin on the earth. 
You say, oh, but I, maybe my sins are just too many. I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of things that I've done on. Listen, Jesus is always standing before the Father. Because he is risen, he will never die. So he will always stand before the Father. His scars will always be present, saying, Father, my sacrifice, you said, was sufficient. So no charges, no condemnation can be brought against my son or my daughter. And the father gladly says, yes, son, your sacrifice is enough. No charges, no condemnation can be brought. He always lives to intercede. Hebrews 7.25 puts it so powerfully. He is able. Just sit on that word for a minute. He's able What's he able to do? To save to the uttermost. Oh, what a word. Not to save partly and, and we hope he can do it in the end and all that. No, no. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our Savior, right this moment, ever lives to make intercession. So do you think that Jesus might ultimately condemn you? Here's the big question for you. Why would Jesus condemn you when every second of every day he is interceding before the Father that you might never be condemned? What do you think? He's suddenly going to turn against you at the end and be like, I know I did all that. I know I died. I know I did all, I know I interceded for his, his or her entire life, but you know what? I just change your mind now. No, it is absurd. It is unthinkable that Jesus will ultimately condemn those who belong to him. For Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So there you have it. That's really two sermons for the price of one today. You get two. The third question and the fourth. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then these verses are meant to fill you with assurance that no one can charge you and no one can ultimately condemn you. With these verses, you should be able, like Paul, to throw down the gauntlet and in bold defiance stand up and, and ask anybody in heaven, earth, uh, in hell, anyone, everybody, First question, does anyone dare to charge me with sin? No one can do it. And it's not because you're innocent. Oh, no. We're all guilty. Our crimes are many. But God has justified us through faith in Jesus Christ. And then you can throw down the gauntlet again. Does anyone dare to condemn me for my sins? Does anyone dare to pick up that gauntlet? No one can pick it up. But a secret voice may just whisper, oh yes, no one can condemn you for God himself has justified you through Jesus Christ. But what if Jesus ultimately condemns you? And when you hear that voice, just start laughing. Just say, just say that is absurd. That is ridiculous. Are, are, do you, are you talking about the Jesus who like left the glory of heaven, suffered terribly, and died in my place on the cross that I might never be condemned? Is that the Jesus you're talking about? Are you talking about the Jesus whom God raised from the dead, fully accepted his sacrifice for sins, gave him all authority in heaven and earth, and the Jesus who right now every second is interceding that I might finally be saved? Is that the Jesus? 
Jesus that you are suggesting might finally condemn me? Oh, you just want to break out laughing. You just want to say that's absurd. What are you talking about? You can say, be gone, wicked voice. It's you who will ultimately be condemned for slandering the glory of the Savior. So you see then why J.C. Ryle said those words? Let's reflect on them again. Assurance goes far to set a child of God free from a painful kind of bondage, and thus it ministers mightily to his comfort. It enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business, the great debt a paid debt, the great disease a healed disease, and the great work a finished work, and that all other businesses, diseases, debts, and works are then, by comparison, small. It makes him always feel that he has something solid beneath his feet. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we glorify you. We praise you. You alone could accomplish all this. This news is beyond our comprehension. What amazing assurance we can have because of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. We praise you. We exalt you. And Father, I pray that among all our people, all those who are truly your children, Lord, that you would banish all of these secret fears, any of these lingering doubts, that you would bring assurance to your true children of their position, of their safety within you. We're grateful that this not, does not depend on us, for we, we would utterly fail if it depended on us, but that it depends upon you and what you've done for us through Christ. So we give you thanks. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper and celebrate together. And I want today to have that triumphant tone just like Jesus, or just like Paul has when he speaks of what God has done for us through Christ. So get your communion supplies ready. uh, And we're going to sing that song that we were referring to earlier. Notice the first verse is all about Christ interceding for us now. This song just captures so well the triumphant tone of what Paul is talking about here. So let's reflect on these words, let's prepare our hearts, and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But first, let's sing this song before the throne of God above.